Thanks, team. Good morning, everyone. And uh, let's get into God's Word here together. And I want to uh, begin with uh, a little review of last week, and I need to do so for a couple of reasons. One is that The passage that we're studying is one of the most culturally difficult ones to uh, wade our way through. There is a lot in here that is uh, 2,000 years old and strikes us as being a tad on the odd side. And so I want us to upload the things that we talked about last week, make sure they're fresh, fresh because uh, otherwise when we get going into more of the passage, it's going to seem odd again to you. So I want to do it for that reason. Second reason is that um, every service here, we have many uh, people who are here for the very first time. And so you were not here last week. And so as we talked about the things last week, you're coming in here fresh today. And I think that if I didn't kind of review a little bit, you might think, why is this church studying this? And I will tell you why we're studying. It's because we, we believe the Bible is, is entirely inspired by God. All of it is here for our good. And so we work our way through uh, the, the, the Bible, and we don't cherry-pick the easy passages. We do the hard ones as well. And this is a harder one. And so we're working our way through it, trying to be faithful to God's Word and to, uh, to get all that it has for us. So I think a little review for our, uh, our guests here today would also, be, would also be helpful. Now, much of the challenge that we have before us is this whole... Uh, matter of culture. And we talked last week that when you're reading the Bible and trying to understand what it's saying, oftentimes you have to ask, is this something that is a cultural truth or is this something that is a universal truth? Because there are some things that are unique to that culture. Like last week, I gave the illustration from Romans 16, 16, which says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I had you all stand and I kind of acted like I was going to have you all kiss each other. And then I had you shake hands and you thought that was funny. And it kind of made the point that there are some things that are cultural in the Bible that don't exactly apply uh, to us. But there are then universal truths that transcend culture, transcend time. They are always true. And we have to ask ourselves on that level, how do those things apply to us? And how do we express those in our culture today? So we come to 1 Corinthians 11 now, and here's what it's talking about. It's talking about women wearing head coverings. Now, none of you woke up today and said, I can't wait to go to church and hear about head coverings. Uh, I know that is the case, but that is what the Bible is talking about on the cultural level. Now, we're going to get into the universal, but on the cultural level, that is, that is the issue. And in that culture... A woman wearing a head covering was a woman who was expressing her gender in culture. That was the expectation of the day. A man who wore a head covering, a shawl over his head, would be a man who was dressing like a woman. Maybe like a man wearing a pretty flowery dress in our culture, which you don't see that very often. Uh, I hope. Um, And it would strike us as being like really odd to see that. Similarly, a man with a shawl would be odd. And a woman without a shawl would be odd because women wore shawls. Men did not. That just was the way, that's the way that it was. A woman who was not wearing a shawl was a woman who was either a prostitute um, or a mistress or just a woman trying to look like a man. And so you didn't see that very often. 
And in the church, uh, the, the, the challenge that was going on in the church at Corinth was that there were women in the gathered assembly of the Christian community who were removing their shawls as a part of worship. And it was creating all of this turmoil as to what is she doing and why are they doing that? And so Paul is addressing it here in chapter 11. Now, is there a universal truth? Yes. And this is what I want to spend some time on again. The universal truth, which is uh, presented in verse 3. Here's what it says. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now that last phrase is the one that really unpackages the rest of this. The head of Christ is God. Or we could use the Trinitarian language and to say, the head of the Son of God is God the Father. That God the Father exercises a kind of headship over the Son, which the Son submits to and delights in. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, the Bible says that God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is only one God, and he is one God. But in the mystery of God's revelation here, we find that God is also three, that there are three distinct persons within the Trinity. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, they are co-eternal, they have all the attributes of God that they share fully. One is not wiser than the other or more powerful than the other. They are absolutely equal. And yet, they fulfill different roles within the Godhead. God the Father has things that he does in his role of headship that the Son doesn't do. And the Son has certain things that he does as the Son that the Father and the Spirit don't do. They have roles. They're equal, but they have roles that they play. And they love it. They delight in those roles. The Father loves to see the Son doing what He does as the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves to see the Father exercising headship and the Spirit being the Spirit. And, and the Spirit loves the same with the Father and the Son. The Son is not secretly wanting to be the Father. There's no like competition in the Godhead. He's not secretly pining away. Why am I the Son? I wish I was the Father. You know, like the, like the younger brother, I wish I was the oldest brother, which I can say as an oldest brother, that little thing that happens, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. So there's none of that within the, there's no competition. There is love. There is joy. There is delight in all of it. So creation then was a kind of explosion of overflowing joy that God had within the Godhead in their relationship with one another. And that is why, listen, that is why if you want to understand everything, a theology for everything, you have to realize that it all comes back to the triune God and that love relationship specifically with between the father and the son. And creation then is this explosion. The universe just out of happiness that the Father and the Son have with themselves. And so what God did then is in creation, he built into the fabric of this whole universe little pictures of what he is like. 
I would compare this to a couple in love. One of the sure signs that a couple is in love is that cameras come out, right? They start taking pictures. And it's always a little awkward at first. Could we get our picture together, you know? And often it's the girl kind of saying that because she wants to show her new guy to her friends and all that. And so the guy's like, okay. I don't, I have no idea how I know this, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she wants to show him off. Uh, I'll stop with that right now. Anyway, uh, they take pictures and of, of themselves together. And they do so in pretty places, like, you know, with the flowering tree behind them, or at Buckingham Fountain in Chicago, or the top of Sears Tower, or Grand Canyon, whatever. You know, there they are together, and they're smiling. And couples love pictures of themselves together. And then they take them, and they just, they put them up everywhere. If you've ever been to, you know, a home where the girl is in love, you know, you go into her bedroom, and there's just, there's like pictures of them and him all over and you know they're jammed into the little pe- the little space between the wood and the mirror you know there's that little slot you can slide there's just pictures up and down that slot and in the bathrooms and in the you know in the car next to the speedometer and on her facebook page and on her phone and his too it goes both ways x's and o's These are happy pictures. And why do they do that? Because they're delighting in the relationship. And so they love to see pictures of themselves together. Because they love the relationship. It displays it. And that is what God did when he created the universe. This isn't just like, oh, I think I'll do it this way. A random universe. It is intentionally designed and purposed by God to display his glory. To display what he is like. And the supreme display of what God is like in all of the universe. Is human sexuality and human gender. Now, I want to show you. How this is God's self-portrait. And to do so, it's in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, this is, e- this is an easy one to find. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 1 is the first chapter of the first book in the Bible. So go to the front cover. Just a little bit inside of that, you will find Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, and I think we have it on the screen as well. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, which by the way, we see God building into creation a system of of authority and dominion, even there as humans exercise dominion over and stewardship over the creation. But that's not the point. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. So God purposed a unique representation of what he is like. And it wasn't the dolphins, 
And it wasn't the lizards, and it wasn't the creeping things, and it wasn't the planets, and it wasn't the stars. The thing that uniquely represents what God is like in this entire creation is male and female. He created them. We bear the image of God, which means that we uniquely picture what God is like. But in that picturing, it is maleness and it is femaleness. Now, many of you have probably seen this picture before. You familiar with this? This is Norman Rockwell's self-portrait. And it is a very clever self-portrait. Because if you look carefully, you'll see it is, it is a self-portrait that is a picture of him drawing a picture of him. You see that? So you actually have, there's actually three pictures of him in the one picture. You've got you, you, the, the view of him from behind, that's actually him. And then you've got the view of him in the mirror from the front, what he actually looks like. And then on the canvas, you have a picture of how he sees himself. And so it's a multi-perspective self-portrait. Pretty clever, don't you think? I'd say so. Almost the most clever self-portrait that has ever been done. But there is one that is definitely better. And it is God's self-portrait. God could have displayed himself in creation by simply giving one perspective of what he is like. He could have created everybody male. All males. No females. Men, what do you think of that? You're wise enough to answer nothing right now. That's good. I'd say overall it would be a loss though, don't you think? Don't you think? Just grunt or something, you know. Let me know that you're with me. It would be a loss to us, definitely. Plus the whole world would smell like a men's locker. So we, it would be a loss to us. But God could have done that. Because our maleness in the image of God gives one perspective of what God is like. But we know that God is not, he is one, but he is more than one. He is three in one. He is plurality in unity. He is diversity in unity. He is equality, but different roles in perfect harmony. So what does God do in in drawing the picture in creation? He doesn't just make us all males. Male and female, he created them. And that is the key there. The human race is a them. It is not plurality of maleness. It is plurality of gender. We are the same, but we are so different. Don't you think? Now, Saturday night, man, they were amen and they were with me. You've had all morning to wake up. So come on. We are different, aren't we? radically different. I have a friend who told me once, he said, you know, it's like God created men and women and then just sat back and said, oh, this is going to be fun to watch. (laughs) We are so different. We are so same, 
but we are so different. We are male and female, both bearing the image of God, but together representing what God is like. Plurality and unity, two in one, male first, then female. God, the Father in headship, and the Son in an equal but different role. So do you see like the brilliance of this? How absolutely brilliant it is to to see what God intended in the original form of this. Before the fall, before sin, when maleness and femaleness was the way that God intended it to be. Before the brokenness and pain. Adam perfectly expressing masculinity and leadership, servant leadership. Eve wonderfully complementing that masculinity with a kind of feminine beauty and tenderness and creativity and playfulness and companionship so that the masculinity and the femininity together in perfect harmony unveils the Godhead in creation in a unique and wonderful way. And God loved it. God loved it. God loved to see Adam and Eve being male and female. He loved to see the masculinity and femininity. It was a picture to him. He loved Adam's tender servant leadership. He loved Eve's companionship and creativity. Even their sexual expression was a delight to him. He made them to physically fit together. That is not the result of evolutionary change. It is divine purpose that males and females fit together. As one writer said, God didn't cover his eyes as their sexuality became physical oneness. He watched and laughed with delight as that physical delight between the male and the female rose to a level as close to the father's delight in the son. As humans can get. Beautiful. And as a side note, married couples, part of what the gospel is restoring and part of what Jesus is restoring is your relationship back to what God intended in the first place. And God will restore, not all the way in this life, because we are still sinners, but God can and will restore your relationship back to the beautiful picture God intended in the first place. And may God, may God solidify the marriages of our church, and may you display the glory of God in your relationship. So are you seeing this now? Men and women, we are different because of divine purpose. We are, our distinctions are important to God because it mirrors what he is like. He's like Norman Rockwell looking at himself in the mirror through our masculinity and our femininity. And these are for his glory and delight. So that's what it means when it says the head of Christ is God. Chapter 11, verse 3. Everything flows from that. So like I said last week, I hope you're getting the idea that your, your gender, whether you're man or woman, is much more than body parts and plumbing. Your gender is a God-intended, glorifying God picture of the Godhead. 
Male and female, he created them. And so the challenge for us then is how do we express that masculinity and femininity in the culture that we live in? And that really is what Paul is getting at here. So, and that is the key now in the puzzle of chapter 11, is seeing that the gender distinctions glorify God. That's what he cares about. And how do we express that in our particular culture that we live in? So, as we get now into chapter 11, again, these things will sound, will sound odd to us, but we're separated from their culture like by 2,000 years. I saw a movie trailer this week that depressed me. And from the movie trailer, it looks to me to be one of these movies not worth seeing uh, and probably will uh, quickly go to video and then disappear off the planet. It looks like a totally stupid movie. But the movie trailer, uh, the story is about these four guys who get into a time machine and they go back in time all the way back to 1986. (laughs) Now, the reason this was depressing to me is I graduated from high school in 1986, and now they're making movies about time machines going back all the way to my senior year in high school. That's how some of you felt when you watched Jurassic Park, probably. Moving right along. <laughs> so in the movie trailer, these guys, they get out of the time machine and, and they're freaking out about, the, about what they're seeing. They're like, there's this person and they're, they're listening to a cassette. They're like, oh, God, look at that. And a girl walks by with leg warmers on. Some of you girls wore them. You know you did. That was the style. And just all the rest. And it's like a movie about just the shocking cultural change since 1986. Okay, you know what we're reading right here? 2,000 years old. Totally different part of the world than what we live in. And so we shouldn't be surprised by some things that strike us as odd. Now here's Paul's point. His point is, is that masculinity and femininity must be... The distinctions must be maintained, and they must be expressed in culturally relevant ways. That's his point. Now, let's read verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, remember the context here in verse 11, coming out of verses 8 and 9, where Paul makes the point that Adam was created first, then Eve. Adam, or Eve was made out of Adam, out of the rib of Adam. She derives her nature from Adam. That Eve was made for Adam. Adam was not made for Eve. So, very much a strong male headship presentation there. Verse 11 is kind of a balancing statement now. Because he says in verse 11 that all men are born of a woman. And isn't that the irony, if you think about it? All women come from man, come from Adam. But every man since Adam has come from a woman. 
And we see in that the mutual dependency that we have with one another. Man cannot be isolated from a woman. Men need women. Amen? More than we realize. (laughs) We do. And women need men as well. We are in this together. In isolation, we would be quickly done. But together, um, together is is God's plan. And that is God's design. So that's the balancing statement here that men have this. And especially, I think, as it relates to uh, family and to our mother, to our mama, (laughs) men always feel this kind of connection. It's undeniable. When they, when they put cameras on the NFL, on the NFL uh, fields, on the, on the sidelines, I don't think I've ever seen a guy go, hi, dad. What do they always say? Hi, mom. Right? Big strapping guys. Hey, mom. Several years ago, I got connected with an organization that takes uh, ex-NFL, mostly NFL players, ex-professional athletes, and like trains them and then sends them out to speak at schools and camps and different things about not doing drugs and making your life matter and all that. And I got connected with them. Not because I'm an ex-pro athlete by any means, but just to kind of uh, work with them in some things. And so I made friends with one of the guys, just, I think it was an ex-bear player, huge guy, like gigantic offensive lineman guy. Have you ever, have you ever stood next to an NFL player, like a lineman? It's one thing to see him on TV, but when you stand next to him, we went out to dinner one night. I remember this is off subject. We went out to dinner one night and I was sitting there. And one of these guys was sitting next to me, and I was looking at his leg, and then I was looking at my leg. I'm like, it's like I'm a different species or something than them. Huge. And this guy, Mike, is huge. So anyway, he was doing some uh, speaking in the area, and I was driving him to a a school in Gary that he was going to speak at. And he told me the story. He said, hey, recently I was at a, uh, a boxing gym. They wanted me to talk to the boxers. And he goes, when I went walking into that gym, the language in that gym was appalling. And they got everybody together. And he goes, and I said to them, I cannot believe the language that I am hearing in this place. Which you can do when you're an ex-NFL offensive lineman. (laughs) You can say pretty much whatever you want to say. And uh, he goes, so I said to them, I go, he goes, I said to him, how many of you have a grandmother that's praying for you? And he said all their heads all went down in shame and they raised their hands. Doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's got a mama. Everyone's got a mama. And we feel that sense of connection, that sense of dependency. Because men need women and women need men. And all of this is from the Lord. Now here's where Paul gets cultural. And the peculiar peculiar interpretations of this passage is what explains when you go to Shipshawana and you see the Amish women, why they wear their hair the way that they do. Or if you go to a Mennonite church, why the women wear what they do. It all comes from these verses right here. So let me read them and then we'll, we'll take them apart. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. 
For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right. What does that mean? And why don't I see more hair buns here today? This all has to do with interpretation. Remember, in verses 4 through 10, Paul has compared a woman with a shawl on to a woman who, is, who has a covering and who is expressing her uh, womanhood in culture. He says in verse 6 that for a woman to shave off her head would be a, her head, her hair. I think we could include head as well. For a woman to shave off her hair would be a disgrace. Because in that culture, that would be a woman trying to look like a man. Only men did that. Similarly, in that culture, for a man to have long hair meant that he was a man trying to look like a woman in that culture. Now remember, we have to ask the question, is this a cultural truth? Is this a universal truth? And on this point, what is, which is it? Well, Paul says in verse 14, does not nature itself teach? And what he's referring to there is that in their culture, doesn't it just seem right that a man should have short hair and a woman should have long hair? In that culture, in that culture, a man with long hair was trying to look like a woman. And a woman with short hair was trying to look like a man. Is that universally true? I would say no. There are many places in the world today where the cultural expectation for a man is to have longer hair. And how long's long, anyway? Longer hair. And the same is true for women, where the styles and the look and all the rest, it's different all the time. There are many places where it's expected that men would have short hair. And for many men here, God has decided you're better without any at all. So what changes faster than hairstyle culture? I mean, some of you women, I can't keep up with you. Like one week it's one way, one week it's the next way. And some of you, it changes your look a lot. You should wear a pin. It's a different hairstyle today. Remember me from last week? It would be helpful. (laughs) Things are changing all the time. And even with men, these things change. Sometimes it's short, long, wavy, messy, buzz cut, gelled, moosed, flat top, mullet. (laughs) There was a time when every one of those styles was the cool thing to wear and to look. That was the look at the time. But it's constantly changing. So the mistake here is to think that God has a kind of hairstyle or hair length that he really likes. God doesn't care about that. What God cares about is his glory displayed through the picture of maleness and femaleness expressed in whatever culture they are living. That's what he cares about. He delights in the differences so that there is nothing uglier to God 
than a man who's trying to look like a woman. He's like, I made you to be a man, be a man. Look like a man in your culture. And what's even uglier than that is a woman who's trying to look like a man. That's really ugly. God's in heaven go, why are you doing it? Why are you, I, I made you to be a woman. Be feminine. Display that in a beautiful way. Do that. So hair is superficial. Gender distinction is divine, triune, and transcultural. So men, rather than obsessing over your hair, obsess over your masculinity and the displaying of that masculinity in culturally relevant ways in the home. Ladies, rather than not cutting your hair and thinking you're godly, rather than looking like Crystal Gale, which I said first service, and half the crowd's like, who's she? Remember, I graduated in 1986, so I'm going way back. (laughs) Rather than uh, obsessing about your hair, worry about the expressing of real feminine beauty which has nothing to do with your hair. It is defined in 1 Peter 3 as this. Do not let your adorning be external. Don't let your beauty focus be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That is what, sisters, you need to be focusing on. That is the obsession, to be beautiful in the eyes of God. So that what we can say about this passage is that it's not about the head and it's not about the hair. It is about God's purpose and design for manhood and womanhood and our need to express that in cultural norms for our day. So 2,000 years ago, men didn't wear shawls and they didn't have long hair. Women wore shawls and they did have long hair. So guess what Paul says? Do that 2,000 years ago. Here we are today and... Are there cultural norms today? In some ways, it's a little fuzzier, though, I think, in our culture because there's so much diversity and and all the rest. It's not as clear-cut. And the last thing that I want to do is to say, this is what a Christian looks like. Because I grew up in a kind of Christianity that oftentimes said, this is what a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian doesn't look like. If you see somebody who looks like this, witness to them. What does a Christian look like? Nothing that you can observe with the eyes. It is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of faith. It is an internal reality. And I also want to hasten to add, there are some biblical principles that, do trans, that are transcultural when it comes to this. One that comes to my mind is the command that women are to dress modestly. So it's not like we just let the culture define everything. However, It is not so much an expectation on what Christians look like as much as what men and women in our culture look like, behave like, express gender like. Because God doesn't want a culture of sameness. If we all show up here on a Sunday and we just all, you know, we, we all look like we've been through some kind of gender bending machine, God's not delighted in it. He loves the difference and he wants us to express it. 
and celebrate it, really, in culturally relevant ways. That's what this passage is about. Okay, final thought. I have a final thought. One of the things I always want to try to do in my messages is to find a way to talk about Jesus. And I want to talk finally about Jesus with you here. If you remain unconvinced that this is important, let me ask you, who is the most masculine man that has ever lived? Now, I tipped you off just a moment ago because I told you who I was talking about. I was just kind of keeping you with me there. The most masculine man who has ever lived is Jesus. Okay, we can agree with that, I think. Can we not? Okay, if you come up with somebody more masculine than him, you come up and see me later, we'll worship him. I don't know anybody more masculine than Jesus Christ. You know, it's one thing to conform to cultural norms when you are like us, where we feel some pressure to kind of fit in. We have peer pressure. We want to be accepted. When you are God, what expectation do you feel inside to do anything? Jesus can do whatever he wanted to do. He could dress whatever way that he wanted to dress. There's even speculation about whether Jesus even felt naked. He was the holy son of God. No sin, no shame with him. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And yet, what do we find Jesus doing? Expressing masculinity according to the cultural norms of his day. So that he dressed and he looked like a man. His relationships were masculine. Men were drawn to him. And he had vital relationships with men and with women. His vocational choice. He was a carpenter. Which I would have to say rates fairly high on the masculine vocational choice list, don't you think? He was a carpenter. He was also single. Which I hasten to add for my single brothers and sisters here who may be wondering, well, how do I do this? I'm by myself. I'm just feminine. I'm just masculine. Jesus was single and displayed his masculinity fully. So he looked like a man. He sounded like a man. He dressed like a man. He related to men. He related to women. He related to children. And if you are looking for an example of what to do with this, I would point you to the masculinity that Jesus exemplifies. And he did that supremely in one way. Many ways, but one way supreme. And before I tell you what that is, I want to give you a definition of masculinity. I can't improve on this, so I'm just going to quote it. At the heart of biblical masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationship. Did you hear that, men? What does it mean to be a man? To lead, provide, and to protect. Now, how does Jesus epitomize this? And here now, I hope you know where I'm going. We go right to the cross. What did Jesus display on the cross? Masculinity in all of its fullness. Because on the cross, Jesus, selflessly, servant leadership, did he lead on the cross? You bet he did. And we are thankful. Amen? He led. Did he provide on the cross? Yes, he provided. He provided eternal life. He provided salvation. He provided 
an escape from the wrath of God. Did he protect on the cross? He protected his people. And he gave himself. And he died. He is the most masculine man who has ever lived. He willingly gave himself up for others. That's a man. That is a man. And that is a hero and a savior. And too often Jesus is portrayed in the media and in paintings and in other places effeminately. Have you noticed this? You look at a painting of Jesus, typically he looks, like, he looks more like a woman than he does a man. He'll be pale, he'll be thin and weak looking and he looks like a woman. He looks effeminate. But effeminate men do not attract the kind of men that gravitated to Jesus and gave up their careers to be around him. Effeminate men don't draw crowds of thousands of people who hang on his every word. Effeminate men lack the strength and courage to stand up to the Herods and the Pilots and entire organizations like the Pharisees who want to kill him. Womenly men don't do that. But a masculine man is a man that will. And men, I want to say to you, God may never call you to die on a cross, but he is calling you to lead and protect and provide in your family and in your marriage and with your children. He may never call you to be scourged, but he is calling you to give of yourself selflessly for the kingdom of God and serving in the church to the glory of God. He may not call you to many things, but here's what I can say to you. If you are a male, God is calling you to be a man. A masculine, real man. And to follow the example of our masculine Savior. And real men will step up and do it. Real men will. Now, there are men that think that they're real men, but they are passive weak, spiritually effeminate. And the church is filled with them, sadly. By church, I mean big C, universal church. I think that when men are men, women get very feminine. When men are men, women get very feminine. When men are not men, women get very masculine because somebody's got to be masculine in the church. Somebody has got to do it. Somebody has got to step up and lead. And women, praise God, will do it if the men do not. But women women do not like spiritual wimps. Don't. Or bullies, for that matter. But when there is a servant leader man who steps up with a heart to lead, provide, and protect. The women around him get very feminine. And that beauty, that complementary beauty that God intended when he created women in the first place, which is so, like, awesome, begins to shine through. Because when there is a man... The woman is free to be feminine. And then the picture, the happy picture, 
that God created this to be in the first place is displayed and the glory of God shines through it, which is to the joy of the masculine man and the feminine woman and is to the glory of God, which gets us right back to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whether you're a man or a woman, do it to the glory of God. And that all comes back to him. You see? You with me? May God fulfill this good purpose in our community. Praise him. Would you stand with me for a word of prayer?